Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez. My guest today is Courtney Ream. Courtney, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Henry. Great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to this conversation. Lots that Courtney uh, can share and will share, and he's here to share some practical advice for entrepreneurs looking to bring their ideas to market quickly and effectively. We're going to call this episode Shortcut Your Startup because that's in part the name of a book that he released uh, now a couple years ago, a best-selling book that we're going to touch on. But if you want to receive more information about the Howa business, including the show notes page for this episode, and how you can continue supporting my show and receive exclusive content and discounts through a Patreon membership, please visit thehowabusiness.com. I also encourage you to subscribe to my show wherever you're listening so you don't miss any new episodes. So I got quite a bio here on Courtney because he's done so much, and I think it's important to cover all of this. I usually have a very short bio, but let me share with you about Courtney. Courtney Ream is the author As I mentioned of the national bestseller, Shortcut Your Startup, Speed Up Success with Unconventional Advice from the Trenches. And it offers practical advice for entrepreneurs looking to bring their ideas to market quickly and effectively. He's also the co-founder of M13, which is a leading venture capital firm with a portfolio of $137 plus billion dollars and $900 million in assets under management. So a very successful fund. After helping take Under Armour and Vitamin Water public 15 years ago, while he was working as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, he and his brother Carter founded their first business, the popular spirits brand Vive, which grew from zero to one of the best-selling independent liquor brands in the U.S., And after the sale in 2016, they founded Los Angeles headquartered early stage consumer tech investment firm, M13. And so a little bit more about M13. M13 has invested in 130 plus companies, including Bird, Cabify, Q, Daily Harvest, FabFitFun, Matterport, Ring, Rothy's. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Is it Rothy's? Yep, correct. Yep. Uh, Scopely, Thrive Market, and Transfix, just to name a few. Now, each of those valued at a billion dollars plus. M13 is also known for its high-profile investors, such as Sir Richard Branson, Tony Robbins, and Ariana Huffington. What makes them different, though, is that beyond funding startups, they have a propulsion team made up of different vertical experts who help entrepreneurs and their teams make smarter decisions that scale their business much faster. Courtney has been featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list, Richard Branson's book, Screw Business as Usual, and Goldman Sachs, 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs. He lives in the Los Angeles, California area, and I have the great privilege of having him here on the show today. Courtney Ream, welcome to the show. Great to be here again. Thank you for having me, Henry. So much we can talk about, but I got to keep it here to about 40, 45 minutes, Courtney. Thanks again for being with me. I'm excited about this conversation. I, I want to go back to the early days because that that journey is always inspirational to me and to others. 
as to how you got to where you are. You started your career at a school, a lot of good schooling, and then you went into investment banking, right? Correct. Um, I was kind of of that ilk where uh didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't one of those kids who said I want to be XYZ at age 14 and uh, figured if you don't know what you want to do. And I, I went to undergrad in New York City. Uh, Wall Street kind of seemed like it made sense. And I figured there could be worse things in the world than getting training at a place like Goldman Sachs. And it would um, you know, open a lot of doors and keep a lot of option value. So that's what I ultimately decided to do. And then what leads to you deciding, all right, let's go, I think you and your brother, to go start this spirits company. What what prompted that? Yeah, you know, when you're when you're in your 20s, sometimes uh, it not a whole lot prompts it, other than when you work at a place like Goldman Sachs, got a lot of great training on a very, very narrow scope or bandwidth of, of what it takes to build a business. Obviously, you learn lots of corporate finance, mm-hmm. um, some on strategy. And I think both my brother and I felt like there was other parts of business, um, certainly the relationship side, but but the sales and marketing side that we would be good at, or at least wanted to try. And so building a brand and starting a brand would let us, let us do that. And so, um, you know, the specific idea around spirits was was not much more at the time than, um, you know, going out as you do in your twenties and drinking things like Red Bull vodka and thinking there has to be a better way to do this. And thus our tagline of our first product, Vive, a better way to drink. Um, but as I'm sure we'll get to part of writing a book is, is that we got really lucky in starting something with kind of some good intuition and a little bit of trends, but we, we did not do the, the research and the kind of getting deep in the trenches that one should do now to start something. So we were, we were lucky to have some success with Vive and then even luckier to be able to, to then, you know, share that pattern recognition of a, of a bunch of companies and hopefully help people do it differently and more thoroughly going forward. Interesting to, to avoid some of those mistakes and to not have to depend so much on everything falling your way, I guess. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, and and it's interesting. Also, you point out it's you had you identified an opportunity there. Something it's not that you were passionate about drinking, but you knew something about it as a consumer. But you you simply identified an opportunity there, and that's why you went down this path. It sounds like. Yeah, I I think I've always been a pretty healthy person. I I played college sports. I've always you know felt better when I sleep better and eat better and all that stuff. But. By no means am I a saint. I also want to enjoy my life. And so I think when I moved from uh, uh, New York to Los Angeles with a couple stops in between overseas, this idea of like, okay, I'm, I'm now living in Los Angeles in California and people are looking for a healthier diet, a healthier this, a healthier that. We really felt like um, your drinking experience was one of the last things to evolve. And I was shocked the number of people that ate a certain diet or did this or did that. And then just you know, mm-hmm. drank a bunch of cheap alcohol. And so we said, can we start um, a better proposition, both in terms of the quality of ingredients in the bottle and also kind of the the product and the mission? When you started the business, did you both have a somewhat definitive exit in mind? Y- yes and no. I, I think we, well, the, the last chapter of our book is always talking about when you start something, make sure you have the exit in mind. So I think that is one of the biggest mistakes I see people doing is that, that they don't do that. I don't know if I can honestly say that that's exactly how we started it, but I, I will say that I did know from my Goldman Sachs days, I had been a part of a couple spirits deals and I was amazed at um, 
you know, if you built some traction, what the exit multiples and prospects looked like. Obviously, at the time when you're reading 10Ks and 10Qs and doing market research, it's very different than how hard it is to sell a bottle or a case uh, on the street. And so mm -hmm. there's a reason those those uh, to the victor goes the spoils and, and it's that hard to kind of get that traction in sales. But yeah, I think we were we were aware of it. And especially in a space like spirits, it wasn't meant to be something where we went profitable sale by profitable sale. You're building something with the idea that it's the difference between building a brand and turning a profit. They're not always mutually mutually exclusive, but this is an industry where we felt like it was more about growing and building a brand versus optimizing for profit early yeah. on. Yeah. And then, so after this, now you're an angel investor or venture capitalist, you've got M13. So more of this focus on helping others build businesses, being a part of it. I got to think that that's, that's what appeals to you most, not necessarily going and building a business that you're going to own multi-generationally, but to have these different startups that you're involved with. That's obviously what appeals to you and your brother, right? That's right. I would say, you know, everyone has kind of different motivations and in intrinsic and extrinsic for doing things. I I just love to feel like I'm um, innovating and building. And sometimes that can be on my own. Sometimes that can be with others. Sometimes that can be through others. And so uh, if I've if I've earned any anything in the last uh, 20 years of my uh, career that I've worked very hard at, it is to have some of that freedom to to have this container of M13, where depending on the day and the uh, the the project, I can feel both entrepreneurial. I can I can be an investor, a venture capitalist. I can be an entrepreneur. A lot of days, it's a, it's a combination of both, and I think it really helps what we do. But it also feels good to be able to kind of operate in in those realms. Mm -hmm. Were you? Do you think you were always the type that um, needed to have multiple things going on at once, or you? I mean, it was nine years at Vives, and I like that was a short stint. But right. that you need that next thing or multiple things going on at once—is that who you are? You think? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I, I think you touched on one thing that I certainly learned, which is that you know, Vives is a yeah, probably closer to a nine, eight, nine year journey. And I think I realized after that, um, especially with where the world's going, that maybe I don't want to always start something where I know my exit strategy. Well, sorry, I, I might not know the company's exit strategy, but mm -hmm. I always want to know my exit strategy, meaning where am I best? How can I, I'm one of those people, I, I work really hard. I come out fast. I, I go hard, but it's hard to sustain that for eight, nine years. Right. And so it's about knowing, okay, here's what I'm good at. I'm good at zero to one, A to B or B to C but have the um, the succession plan or the backup plan or the co-founder plan, whatever whatever it may be. That is something I have certainly learned um, that you kind of touched on. And then to the answer, the other part of your question, yeah, I don't, I think because I wasn't always the person that knew exactly what I wanted to do or was passionate about one thing, I do think um, my brother Carter and I, and, and I should mention early on here that my brother has been my business partner for 15 years and we also both, uh, worked at Goldman Sachs together and, and went to the same school. So we've been, uh, and we're obviously uh, about best friends growing up. So we've been intertwined for a while. But um, I do think that part of our superpower is being able, uh, compared to most people, to juggle a couple things at once and have a few irons in the fire. 
and um, part of the name of, of M13, our company now, what it stands for, it's the brightest cluster of stars in the Western hemisphere, whereby um, the sum of the whole shines greater than the individual parts. So it is kind of this idea mm-hmm. of the constellations and connecting the dots. And I think uh, two of our bigger superpowers are being able to juggle a lot of things, but also then having the pattern recognition to say, oh, if I take this idea with this person connected to this, we can pull things together and, and kind of see the the path in a way that I don't think most people can. Yeah, you know, well said. Curious, you know, working with your brother, like you said, as you have for some time, it's, um, I mean, I prefer working in partnerships, but there's complications, especially when you're working with family. If you, if you would say there's one thing on uh, towards the top of the list of reasons why you guys have done it well, what would that be, Courtney? Uh, I, I, I think trust has to be at the top of the list, family or not. And I think hopefully when it's a family member in the, in the good examples you hear, the trust is kind of a, uh, a greens fee, but a very important greens fee. And, and after that, um, I would also say that in my brother and I's case, we are in the early days, we were very, um, complimentary, but also substitutable, I think is a word. Um, Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, we were very good at fairly effortlessly and fluidly jumping in for each other. So he would be working on something. I would be loosely aware of it, but maybe not know all the details. He would get jammed on something and say, hey, I'm going to copy of my brother. He'll run with this. And I would know enough, but also, you know, I think we have enough of the similar skill sets and ways of doing things that he could trust that I would then be able to kind of run with that project and maybe someday he'd take it back over. Maybe not. I would post them or vice versa. And so I think some of that interchangeability um, led to a lot of really good results for us. It's kind of the opposite of in the tech world where we now mostly operate, you tend to kind of have the stereotypical complimentary people, right? The one person is kind of front facing and he or she is the charismatic um, leader or salesperson, and the other person's kind of the technical CTO person behind the scenes. My brother and I are, were a little more of uh, interchangeable versus that kind of complementary relationship. Yeah, very interesting, which got to me, it's got to mean that from early on, you know, you were raised right and then you had the relationship that you looked out for each other. In other words, the 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 eagle battle between the two of you has been kept in check for most of your life, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, as, as you know, the the line between healthy competition, unhealthy competition, ego is a very thin one. Um, we were certainly very competitive growing up in, in sports and school. Um, I'm two years older, so as I like to say, there was a, <laughs> a lot of competition. But as Andre Agassi once said about Pete Sampras, well, in order for it to be a rivalry, I have to win one. But um you know, uh, so anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm teasing, but yeah, I think we had a lot of pushing each other, um, to, to be better, but I think hopefully not losing sight of, uh, the fact that we were on the same team and, and we were family and, and everything else. I think that's, that's a, a super important thing that my parents instilled. Yeah. All right. The book that I was referring to again, that you wrote with your brother, shortcut your startup speed up success with unconventional advice from the trenches. What led you to write the book? Uh, (laughs) Well, I, I think um, probably like a lot of people writing a book was on, was on my bucket list. I didn't Mm. think it would happen at the time it happened Uh, a bit of a a kismet serendipitous story that I won't go into detail on. 
But uh, I was at an event and someone did one of those things where, oh, you two should know each other. Um, and then they walked away. So the last thing you want to do is say, who are you? What do you do? And <laughs> we have a little a little talk um, with this with this woman. And at the end of it, she said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I gave some kind of quippy answer. And she said, OK, well, next time you're in New York, why don't you come by my office? I'm a, I'm a literary agent. And um, that time came a few weeks later and uh, we ended up chatting about some ideas. And and uh, I think it was just that time where we felt like we had some unique experiences and some unique um, pattern recognition from all the different brands we had we had been a part of in one way or another. And um, writing a book was a great way to do it because as my as my dad used to say, it didn't happen if it's not on paper. And sometimes you don't mm. know what you think until you put it on paper. And that was uh, certainly the case in both instances with our book. Yeah. And I love the format of it. You know, I'll let you explain it here, but, but really essentially is these, uh, the startup assumptions perhaps, or ideas that you switch up, you kind of take maybe could argue a contrarian approach or a different approach to what might be a typically common myth or known or previous way to do things. Right. Correct. Um, we call them startup switch-ups. And I think the the whole idea is that at least growing up for us, you know, someone said, let me tell you about business or you watch something or you do something. And it was, and it was, it was different because there wasn't YouTube videos to watch or nearly as much access to content. But I do feel like a lot of what I heard was a bit of a sea of sameness and it, it probably worked, but it is a different world. And um, I think we kind of felt like we're in this era where people kept doing the same things without realizing the world had changed. Mm -hmm. So we said, I know this is what you might've heard or what might be intuitive, but this is how we've actually seen it um, manifest itself. So we have a bunch of things where we said, this is how it used to be, but we think this is how it is now. And thus the, the terminology startup switch up. Yeah. At a high level, I, I, I always want to ask this question and I got to ask it of you, but at a high level, if you could, if you were to summarize it in a few sentences, what have you observed as to what can lead to a highly successful business? What what are those ingredients that need to be there for us to have an opportunity to have a, a successful business? Let's see. It, it, yeah, there's a lot to say about that. But I would say the first thing, and it's the first chapter in our book, most people um, go into something without actually doing thorough enough market research. You know, we say kind of investigative journalism, getting in the mm -hmm. trenches. Um, now I'll caveat that by saying it's a fine line because I believe and and I, this, this was the case for our starting our spirits brand. Had I have known then what I know now, I probably wouldn't have done it. So there's right. a fine line between knowing so much and a little bit of, uh, innocence and ignorance is bliss with actually doing enough to make sure your ideas, um, viable. Cause I see so many people start something and I'm like, I know that I see more of it the most, but there's actually 10 companies doing that. So you can't, did you even, did you even Google the competition or something mm -hmm. basic like that? I think that's a big part. Um, I do think the, uh, I do think always thinking about what your exit is um, in, in, in working back from that is so important to kind of go, that's the start and then go to the end. Like what, what is your end goal? Because most of the things that I start now that are in tech the goal is probably some some sort of exit. Right. If you're starting a very successful chain of laundromats, maybe there's an exit, maybe it's not, but you're probably mm -hmm. running it toward scaling and some kind of cash flow. So I think make sure you're being really clear about that. 
Um, and, 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 and especially some, being clear with your partners on that, right? That's where there could be a lot of disconnects. Exactly. And, and, you know, the one thing I think that I see people do a lot is they're like, well, I don't know if I want to sell it. And, and it's like, great. You don't, you don't have to decide today if you want to sell it, but if you don't take steps at every point along the way to put yourself in a position where you have the option to sell it, then I can almost guarantee you won't have the option to sell. It. Right. Right. You, know? you have to operate it just like you, you know, I've always believed you operate it almost as it, if it, as it is a franchise unit that you're going to replicate into a hundred units, even if you don't, but you, I think that is the best course of operation as if you're going to sell it is usually the best way to run a business. I think. Yeah. It, it gives you the option values, but, but right. you, it gives yeah. you the option, but not the obligation. Right. Good point. This is Henry Lopez, briefly pausing this episode to invite you to schedule a free coaching consultation with me. I welcome the opportunity to chat with you about your business plans and offer the guidance and accountability that we all need to achieve success. As an experienced small business owner myself, I understand the challenges you're experiencing, and often it's about helping you ask the right questions to help you make progress towards achieving your goals. Whether it's getting started with your first business or growing and maybe exiting your existing small business, I can help you get there. To find out more about my business coaching services and to schedule your free coaching consultation, please visit thehowofbusiness.com. Take that next step today towards finally realizing your business ownership dreams. I look forward to speaking with you soon. I, I, I want to go back to the research one because as this is something I get asked for and I struggle with a lot because I am analytical and I can over-research. And you, I think you're getting to it by the answer of, is it viable? But do, do you, what do you look for to say, okay, I've done enough research here. I've done my projections. I've gotten them validated. I've gotten input. Now it's overkill. I need to take that leap of faith. Is, is there... Is there kind of you? Do you know when that happens, or, you, or how do you know that you've done enough of the research? I think it it's highly dependent on the type of product and the category you're in. But I'll I'll kind of personalize it to some to to products or something, and sure. say say that you know once you've believe it or not, when we started our first products, research consisted of like Google, Google, and more Google, and that's about it. And even that was like a little. Um, a little bit of the wild west. Now, obviously, that's that's very common at your fingertips. But I think I think we we use an analogy in the book. We call it kind of like the farmer's market version of of your product. Meaning, have you do you at some point? And even if you're not totally sure it'll work, there is something really joyful about like again, I'm using analogies, but scotch taping your product together and having some kind of flimsy thing that you take to a farmer's market and just yeah. see how people react, you know, and that, that tells you a lot. And again, sticking with the farmer's market analogy, what have you lost? You know, probably mm-hmm. not that much, some time and some effort, but a great life experience. And you'd be surprised what you gain. I can name multiple products that I've seen at farmer's markets, specific ones or general kind of innovations where all of a sudden then you see them at Whole Foods two years later. And I know that that started at a farmer's market and you just saw how, early adopters and evangelists responded because that's what it's about. It's not yeah. about to just start something that a million people liked. I mean, a million people didn't like anything to start, right? I mean, when Henry Ford started first car, a million people didn't like that, right? The the quote mm-hmm. of, when I, if I would ask people what they want, they would have said a faster buggy, right? So 
this, these always start with early influencers, adopters, a very small subset of people, and then it spreads from there. And so I'm always, when you say, what are you looking for? I'm always looking for that like outsized um, excitement or, or overzealousness of the early adopters and influencers. Because that tells me if we have something. And I can get to that quickest if I take, you know, some people call it an MVP approach, whatever. Uh The soonest I can get an early version, that scotch tape version to a market to give me that real feedback, that's what you're talking about there, yes? Yes, absolutely. The sooner sooner you get that MVP out, the better. You know, it can't be a product with no value or else that usually doesn't tend to work. But as long as there's some value, I, I, I find that shockingly, if you're delivering something unique or something of value, it might not be the there there of the product, but consumers are forgiving if it kind of starts by still delivering some value and they go, oh, okay, I can see how this will evolve. Um, just to give a little concrete example, we were one of the first investors in Ring, which I'm guessing a lot of your listeners might have the video um, doorbell that was yep. on Shark Tank and everything else. And if you saw the first version of that product, and I, I think we might even mention in the book, you know, Jamie says, I knew we had something, but I was also really embarrassed by the first version of it. And that's yeah. actually kind of the right mix. Like mm-hmm. he knew some people would like it and they would see it. And he was also embarrassed by it, but you can't wait till like, you're not embarrassed by it or else it's just going to take too long and too many iterations and probably competition, but it was still delivering some value. And that's, that's probably the perfect tension. Yeah. Great example. Great example. Um, you mentioned that at the beginning. I've struggled with how much luck, and everybody can define luck in different ways. But, but do you think we need, uh, as part of this, a little bit of luck, whether it's timing or what have you? Is that part of it, or do you not believe in luck at all? Well, uh, I would love to to spar with anyone uh, who doesn't believe in luck at all. But I think there's a difference. I like the quotes like chance favors the prepared. Um, and and I grew up in Chicago during during the late 90s and, you know, Bulls winning championships. And I don't think it's coincidence that some people be like, wow, Michael Jordan seems really lucky. I mean, I don't I don't think that's a that's a coincidence. I do think there's an element of luck in all this for sure. And there's a big element of making your own luck. Um, I think in terms of starting something, I think people forget it's the right idea at the right time in the right context. And that is not luck. There's a lot of analysis that goes into each of those pieces. Now, sometimes when you don't do that analysis, it seems like luck because you were at the right place at the right time. Other people might realize that it is the right context and, and the right timing for this idea. So that's where luck plays it. But I I, I tend to believe a little bit in that, a uh, little bit of that, uh, the balls in your court and a little bit of that fate, meaning, you know, fate can only bring you so far and the rest is up to you. So I, I choose to believe in a little bit of, of that kind of manifest destiny. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I, I, sometimes I said is you, you got to get in the way of luck, right? So if you don't put right. it, you can put yourself in the field of play, you will definitely not get lucky. Right. Right. Um, like so, most of the times you don't get that lucky if you never leave your house now, it's exactly. a different world post COVID, maybe some people do, but <laughs> you know what I mean? You kind of have to put yourself in, in harm's way of that luck as you, as you yeah. said. I want to jump to uh, entrepreneurial criteria you you spell out in the book. We won't go into each one of these characteristics, but these are the things that you lay out that you think are required to be a successful entrepreneur. Let me just rattle them off here, and then I want to focus on one in particular. 
Uh, you say we have to be optimistic, energetic, risk-taking, emotionally resilient, visionary, and persuasive. One that I want to come back and, and talk a little bit about is risk-taking, because that's always an interesting one for me. I, I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs about this and myself. I don't consider myself in what I would traditionally think of as a risk taker, but I've come to understand that I just look at risk differently. Mm -hmm. But what are your thoughts? Do you consider yourself a risk taker? Uh, to your point, I, yeah, I do and I don't. I mean, I do, but I also think when I started my my first company, business school was the backup plan. So is that really taking a risk compared to a lot of people? I, I didn't have a family where I, they were counting on me to put food on the table and kids and everything else. So yeah, I, I do think I took a risk for sure, but I, I see a lot of people who take a lot more risk every day and it's um, it's not a competition, but I'm probably in your camp in that um, I'm pretty hard on myself in terms of the risk appetite and what, what seems like really risky for other people doesn't seem uh, that risky for me because I, I um, feel like I do have good confidence that if it's not it, well, <laughs> Kevin Plank, the founder of Under Armour, when I when I brought my first uh, investment idea to him, he said, you know, I'd, I'd been kind of inspired by him and some others I worked with at Goldman. And his exact quote to me was, Courtney, I feel pretty confident that you have a billion dollar idea and you I'm just not sure it's this one. And uh, <laughs> it's kind of what I believe. I, I, I know I know that I have good ideas in there and I know I have bad ideas. So if this one isn't it, then I, I always believe that that it's you know, there's another one in there to ideate. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think also what it ties to is because you do the right research, you make sure you have the right idea at the right time and the right context, that frames the risk for us, doesn't it? Right. It is still a risk. There's no guarantee that this thing will work, but we minimize the risk by also as to how much of how many of our chips we put on the table on this particular idea. Right. Exactly. You know, I think people, I think, again, no one's got this totally nailed or else they'd be the world's first trillionaire, I reckon. But um, I do think people forget that there is some, I believe that there is things you can do to increase your chances, much, mm -hmm. much like gambling in a casino. And so this is a game of asymmetric risk reward. And now it's never going to be 99%, but you can do things to give yourself a better chance of that upside and maybe a little less chance of the downside. And then it's about, you know, other things, but you really, you can't lose sight that it, this is about asymmetric risk reward. And I say no to things all the time now to invest in where I go, I actually think that's going to make money. But if, if this is the upside, that's not enough upside for the downside risk I'm taking. And yeah, I yeah. think the more you stick to those principles, they'll bear out over time. Because what happens with a lot of people is you confuse, um, not you, uh, people confuse sure. Um, a the the outcome with the process. You can have the mm -hmm. wrong process and and I'll call it a good outcome, just like you can have a bad outcome and you had the right process, but you kind of have to trust that process that eventually it'll it'll pay off or or if you're making the wrong process, eventually it'll catch up to you, I believe. Yeah, makes sense. All right. I, I want to touch on fundraising because obviously you're you're expert at this. And now of course looking at it from a very small business owner's perspective, what what can we learn? What can I learn as a small business owner? who might be reaching out to an angel investor perhaps is more likely than a VC at the level that we're talking about here. But there's always value to learn. You know, of course, we all watch 
Shark Tank and think that's, you know, reality, which is a portion of reality, maybe. Right. What, what, what can we learn? What, what should small business owners know about what at your level you're looking for when you go to consider an investing in a business idea? What are some of those top things you're looking for? You know, I think it's, we call it unfair advantages. And um, some people quibble with me as to whether or not everyone has unfair advantages. And uh, I believe everyone does. I don't believe all unfair advantages are created equally. Your unfair advantages might be more pronounced or, or bigger unfair advantages than mine, but everyone has it. So I would say when you're thinking about trying to get investment from someone, just be really good about positioning what your unfair advantages are to the best of your ability. Um, that matters a lot. That that goes a little bit to what I was saying about um, timing and con content and context. But I think also, I mean, especially at the earliest stages, it is so much about um, the person, as I'm sure a, a zillion guests of yours have said before. But I would always take a chance on what I believed is the is the right person with a pretty good idea versus what seems like an incredible idea with a pretty good person. What are you looking for in that person? I mean, is it is it the obvious culture, leadership, a track record, or what if they don't have a track record? What do you is it a gut feel that tells you this person's gonna do what it takes to make this happen or give it their best shot? What is it that you're looking for? You read some of those those adjectives earlier. I think it's all those things, but yeah. I think um I do just think the the resilience becomes more important every day for a lot of mm -hmm. reasons to me. Um, yeah. I think the person we, there's an analogy in the book that I, that I use a lot that I love is the best entrepreneurs. Now the, I think the days of that kind of uh, 800 pound gorilla steamrolling everyone, it, it doesn't, there are those people you read about like founders of certain big companies, but in general, I think it's 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 like being president of the United States. I mean, nobody can be on top of everything and no one can be good at everything. So it's about, you know, do what you do best and outsource the rest. Know where your strengths are and know where you need to fill in the gaps. That's always the most impressive to me. I see. Um, and then also, uh, we we I love the quote, um, have it, you have to have, uh, the best entrepreneurs have a microscope in one eye and a telescope in the other eye because I you see. have to keep an eye on the minutia and you have to keep an eye on, where you're going big picture. And I think that's a hugely important um, strategic visionary type of trait. Yeah. Being able to balance both. I want to go back quickly to the, my fair ad, unfair advantage. If I'm getting it right, I, I would equate that to what I would otherwise have expressed as my differentiator. What is it that I think that I, that's part of my idea or how I'm going to reinvent the widget that is gives me an advantage. And that could be, you know, maybe I've developed uh, some piece of IP or a uh, sort of move first mover advantage or mm -hmm. whatever it might be, some combination thereof, or I've got the guy who's the expert, something, a combination thereof that's what's going to give me that unfair advantage edge is what you're talking about there. That's one of the things you're looking for. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I think okay. what you said is 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 exactly what I believe. The only reason I call it unfair advantage is because I I find that people tend to talk about that in terms of their idea, and to me, unfair advantage can be both the idea as well as maybe that person, you know, some intrinsic thing or extrinsic thing about that person. It could be 
um, a trait they have that is particularly suited to this industry. It could be a relation, a relationship that they have or something that they, that they found out growing up um, that doesn't always directly tie into the, the idea if they just told you about the unfair advantages of the idea. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Uh, before I wrap it up, the other great takeaway from the book that I wanted to chat about briefly is you say there, there are three key questions to ask before you start anything. One, what does success look like for you? We, we've touched on that, and, and in particular, if you're with partners, right? That's in part the exit strategy, and what does this look like for you? What is it that you want to build? Why has no one else done this? That's always a good question. And, and let me ask you just quickly on that, because often, you know, when we see that there are others in the space, we can look at that as validation that the market, that there's a market, right? Now, you could argue there's saturation, but when no one else is doing it, do you, what do you typically read into that? <laughs> well, I'm a little cynical and I'm a little bit of the mindset of like, I went to Chicago public school. So although I, <laughs> I, I don't lack confidence, if no one's doing it, I start with why is no one doing it? Why, why would, why would I be the one to have this idea or why am I so clever? So I always start pretty cynical, but yeah, with but... certain things I can get there and go, okay, sure. Turns out, but I always start, uh, I find it's better to start with that mindset versus the, oh, clearly I thought of this and no one else has. Not to mention that when we try, when for people who, who are pioneers or bring something for the first time, there's a lot of friction there and evangelizing that has to happen sometimes for that product or idea to get traction. Is that fair? Correct. Yep. Absolutely. Third, why you and why now? Um, so explain just briefly, what, what do you mean by that? Um, it kind of goes back to my, my um, you know, uh, context and timing and idea because mm -hmm. it's, you can, why, the question is, why are you the best suited person to do this, execute on this idea or this, this proposition right now? It, it matters so much because, uh, I'm a very different person at 40 than I was at 30 than I was at 25. Mm -hmm. Hopefully mostly good, but there are traits that I had at, at 26 when I started my first company that might better suit certain ideas than, than at 40. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Again, it goes back to that right idea, right time, right context, inclusive of myself and my team uh, within that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Excellent. Uh, I know there's a website specifically where I can learn more about the book, correct? Correct. Uh, the website is just shortcutyourstartup.com. And shortcutyourstartup.com. I'll have a link to that as well as to the to Amazon, which is one of the many places you can buy the book. It has quickly become, uh, quite honestly, one of my favorite books that I'm recommending just because it's actionable, which is what I try to focus on on this show. You know, and it's very, uh, it's it's relatively easy to follow, and it's not a, it's not a story about how you got rich. It's about here, here are the things to avoid and the things to follow, to uh, improve my chances of success in launching a business. That's the way I saw it. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually think I, I don't have an exact number, but I would bet that we mentioned something like fifty friends and companies in the book. And if anything, it's to say we've crowdsourced all of our best learnings, and I don't have it all figured out. But I do think the pejorative we kind of does have it figured out if if you take the best things from each of the things that we reference in there. Agreed. All right. Again, the book is Shortcut Your Startup, Speed Up Success with Unconventional Advice from the Trenches. 
written by Courtney Ream. And your brother's name again is? Carter Ream. Carter Ream, both of you. Um, but speaking of books, I know you're a big reader. So in fact, we were talking about one, one, one other book that you would recommend. What would that be? Uh, you know, it's always recency bias, but there's a, a, sure. a new friend of mine named Mick Ebeling uh, wrote a book called Not Impossible, Do What Can't Be Done. And if you if you check out his book and what he's done, uh, he, has a, he has a company called Not Impossible. And he has built, he, I think he's like a several time uh, Time Magazine innovator of the year, creating things uh, with shoestring budgets that would just blow your mind. And so whenever someone says something, oh, that can't be done or that's impossible, this this book and this guy um, would, would just blow you away. Excellent. Thanks for that recommendation. Not impossible. I had not heard of that book and I'll have a link to it on the show notes page as well. All right. We'll wrap it up with this, Courtney. What's, what's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation that we had for, for me as a small business owner's perspective that I can take away from what you're sharing in the book and what you've learned about shortcutting a startup and, and avoiding some of those mistakes to get there faster. What's one thing you would have me take away from this conversation? Uh, so many things, but I, I guess I would say I always tell people, you know, don't over don't overthink it. In that, I believe in the Nike, just do it. I I do think starting something entrepreneurship, it's a little bit of this Shakespearean better to have loved and to lost than to have never loved at all, with the caveat. Don't just do it blindly. Make sure you, um, you know, kind of do do your diligence and do it smartly. But I I don't know many people who haven't done it thoughtfully and aren't glad they aren't glad that they at least tried. Right, and that is the balance because again, we can we can hide. I find that I, I do this myself. I can hide behind the analysis and the research or the perfect timing or waiting for all conditions to be supposedly right before I launch. I, I mean, I nonetheless, as you explained, have to make sure, like you said, it's the right idea, the right time. That's a tricky one and the right context. But it goes back also to what we talked about, the MVP approach, for lack of a better term, of getting something out there to validate and then adjust and continue forward. That's that's well said, yes. Tell me again where you want us to go to learn more about the book or also about M13. Yeah, uh, the book, shortcutyourstartup.com. Uh, and then uh, in terms of what I'm spending my time on now, it's it's very much uh, my brother and I's company with a bunch of great partners called M13, and that's just m13.co.co. Excellent. Courtney, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today and share all of this knowledge, especially dealing with my questions from my perspective as a small business owner. I appreciate you being with me today. It was a real pleasure being on. Thanks so much for having me, Henry. This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for joining me on this episode of The How of Business. My guest today, again, was Courtney Ream. I release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find the show anywhere you listen to podcasts, including my website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.